Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again as we continue. Uh, yesterday kind of set up a lot of introduction to this 25th chapter, which we look at some of the trappings of the actual um, practice of some of the faith. And so uh, we'll jump in today. The first thing we do here is this idea of the tabernacle. And, and these are less instructions for building than the fact of getting them. So we're not going to read all the way through all of this, but I will read some of this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, take an offering from all those whose hearts prompt them to give, and you shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, crimson yarns, fine linen, Goats, hair, tanned ram skin, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices, anointing oil for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, gems, etc., etc. And have them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, the idea that now... With Egypt in the very distant past, the very far in the rearview mirror, with the idea of moving toward the promised land, of the idea of being in a new reality, Israel now at God's urging, at God's uh, command, begins to turn their thoughts toward what is the appropriate practice of faith? What is the appropriate response to what God has done? And and we begin with this idea of a, a dedicated space, a holy or a sacred. The word sacred means set apart. A space that will be used to worship, to gather, and in God's own words, that I may dwell among them. And, and you know, Michael, we I don't want to beat this into the ground because we we worked it over pretty good yesterday, but there is something here to the idea that the people and God are are going to work together to create a meeting space specifically for um, the relationship between them. Right. Yeah. That we we spoke about that yesterday. I, I agree completely, and I'm not going to go too far into this, Clint. But I think this does give us an opportunity to illustrate a deeper Bible study kind of point, uh, because it's likely if you look at this text, you come out thinking, what? And also, why? Like, why these things? Why are they listed? What are the significance? And part of that is being a modern reader reading an ancient text, right? Part of this is being a, a people at a certain time looking back upon the practices of another. But there is value in allowing an expert to speak to you. And just earlier today, Clint and I were recording the podcast. They'll come out on Thursday. So uh, if you want to hear that conversation, it'll come out Thursday. But we're talking a little bit about Bible study and about ways and places you might want to go in the pursuit of your own Bible study. And this is just an example, Clint, I wanted to show here. Um, my Bible commentator says uh, about the color blue, it uh, its significance not stated, but some in the history of the church has said that the heavenly character of Christ might be represented by that color. Um, then you have this idea of that the color scarlet comes from this particular worm and the maggots are collected and blah, blah, blah. It says, some say it's the earthly aspect of the Son of Man. 
Uh, you keep going down to the fine linens. It's usually white. Significance isn't stated. Perhaps it represents purity and righteousness. I, the point just being, even the best scholars look at these things and say, huh, wonder what that means. In some cases, wonder what that even describes. And so instead of getting hooked on those details in a text like this, instead of you know diving deeply and trying to figure out everything, um, I, I think a few words of uh, you know wisdom. One, um, read through that text uh, and, and and just try catch the basic ideas. Don't get hung up on details that you understand. Start it. Keep moving. And then, if you're interested, look up an expert and see you know what has the church seen in that before. I think it's striking here, Clint, that uh, the early Christian church saw references of Jesus back into these tabernacle texts, and you know. We're not going to spend a lot of time working on that, but there's more interpretive room than we often give it, and so just be aware of that when you're reading sections like this. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things here is in the sort of in the beginning, Michael, um, tell the Israelites to take an offering from all whose hearts prompt them to give. You know, it's, that's fascinating. We don't have a command here. We don't have, I'm ordering you to give. Right. It, we have an invitation yeah. from all whose hearts prompt them to give, from all who are moved to give, moved to be generous, receive an offering. And the offering here is is very broad. You you could give gold, you could give silver, you could give leather, you could give wood. You, I mean, there. Th- this idea I think that is more interesting than the things themselves is that a. The offering is occasioned by the grateful hearts of the people. And secondly, there are dozens of ways for them to contribute. It doesn't say just gold. It doesn't say just this. That that for those whose hearts prompt them to give, there are multiple ways that that gift can be accomplished. And, you know, I think that's the kind of conversation that you can bring forward out of a text like this. We may not we may not have much need to talk about giving acacia wood or tanned goat skin, but the idea of a grateful heart and multiple ways to express it is I think a place where the church could say, yeah, that that still rings true. You know, Clint, one of the ironic uh, I think I think it's kind of funny things about a text like this is we we talk about the tabernacle about how amazing it is here. Uh, that it says um, that God will uh, actually dwell among them. That's verse 8 here. I think that's really, really a powerful statement that God's going to accommodate the people like that. But, you know, realistically, this is different in the church. Uh, you know, lot, some churches do spend a, a great deal amount of time talking about the tabernacle and helping to illustrate how that is reflected later in the temple. And there's some interesting theological, historical things there for sure. But if you want to talk about broad culture, Clint, nobody cares about the tabernacle. Outside the church, nobody cares. But interestingly, you turn to the Ark of the Covenant, and there's an Indiana Jones movie about that one. And it's one of those interesting things where you are sort of walking along normal biblical ground, things that are maybe a little hard to relate to, and then suddenly you get to the Hollywood section where people have spent time and they're, they're all worked up with opinions. And it's funny how quickly that changes in the uh, study of the scriptures. There's a sense in the scope of the whole story, Michael, where I think you know the tabernacle 
in some ways comes and goes. It, it's important in the wilderness. And then once we're in Israel, once yeah. we're in Jerusalem, now Solomon builds a temple. Right. And the temple becomes hugely important in, in the scope of the Israelite story. But the ark really is that way from the beginning. I mean, th- there are multiple stories about the Ark of the Covenant throughout, not just Exodus, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, you know, and, and you have here this idea that it's, it's a, acacia wood. It's, you know, uh, not up on my cubits. Maybe, maybe the Bible, maybe the study Bible here, but just, uh, two and a half cubits long, cubit and a half wide cubit and a half high, so it's a rectangle. It's a box. It's covered with gold. It has rings on it that are also gold. You put posts, poles through the rings, and that's how it's carried. You may remember that there's a really strange story about David trying to put the ark on a wagon and an oxen stumbling and, and someone, a man named Uzzah, touching it and being struck dead. Well, th- that it was intended to be carried with these poles that go through these rings. Um, then there's the idea of the mercy seat. Um, there are these cherubim, kind of uh, these angelic-type figures that are on top of it, and they they face one another. Um, I don't know, Michael, would it be possible to see if we could uh, Google a quick picture? Yeah, yeah, we'll bring and, that. And, I mean, obviously it would be a guess. We don't know exactly, but... Um, the ark becomes an extremely important uh, relic or article of Israel's faith. It, it is really it comes to be understood as a physical manifestation of God's presence. So that that in the ark there is the power of God, and and in the temple when the temple gets built, the ark of the covenant goes in to the Holy of Holies, the center part and most secluded, off-limits part of the temple. Only the high priest can go in, and he can only go in once a year on on the Day of Atonement to throw blood on the Ark of the Covenant and to work toward the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And if, you know, there is even one tradition that says that the high priest went into the Ark of the Covenant room the Holy of Holies, with a with a rope tied around his foot so that if he messed up and was struck dead, they could pull him out without anyone else having to go in there. It's not clear that that's accurate, but it is a, a church legend, a tradition that comes from those days. But it's hard to overstate the importance of the ark. You know, that that's probably a very... Um, the, the craftsmanship on that looks like probably modern tools. We, we do or don't know if it would have been quite that finished, but that's the idea. You, you see there the box, the wings facing each other, the idea of the mercy seat or the cover really on the top. Um, inside the ark, you're going to have the staff of Moses. You're going to have some manna. You're going to have the tablets of the Ten Commandments. But it, this becomes – it's hard to overstate how sacred this object becomes mm-hmm. – to the people of Israel, and God here gives instructions for how it will be, how it will be made. Well, so Clint, actually, it's a thing like this ark here that makes it so difficult 
in the New Testament for the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get their mind around Jesus, because ultimately it's things like this, and I'm not, we're not limiting it to the Ark of the Covenant, but here we have the physical presence of God. God promises to be present to the people in the midst of their carrying this thing with them in their journeys. And later you have Solomon, we have the temple, we've talked about these things. I, I think it's difficult, Clint, for us to get our mind around that when Jesus says, I am God, this idea that Christians have come to call incarnation, that God has taken on flesh, that is such a radical departure from any history. Now, there were places where God showed up and God promised to be with the people, but never before Jesus's proclamation did anyone conceive of that God being human. And so the covenant, yes, is this sacred relic, this, this sacred uh, container that the people carry with them, the presence of God and the reminder of God's faithfulness. But at the end of the day, it also, to harken back to our conversation yesterday about the tabernacle, I think, Clint, one could make an argument that with all of its sacred importance, in some ways, it became a kind of antidote to the people seeing Jesus and, and God's revelation that advanced in the days after. It's another example where humans get fixated on the thing in front of us, and it keeps us from seeing the bigger story that God is working on. Yeah, the, I think the danger of a thing, even a good thing, is that ultimately it it can be misleading. It can draw attention to itself rather than the one to whom it's supposed to point. And we'll see that uh, down the road a little bit in the book of Exodus, the people, you know, this quest to have a physical thing leads them to build an idol, and and that happens. I I don't know what the the nearest Christian uh, analogous item would be, Michael. Maybe the Holy Grail, you know, for a long period of Christian history, there was this search for the cup of the Last Supper, the idea that it possessed spiritual powers, that it would, you know, extend your life or or purge your sins. Maybe the Shroud of Turin, the, the supposed cloth that covered Christ when he was buried. Um, we, we have been interested in the church at times very much in relics and... Um, the, yeah, the danger of the danger of a relic is that we focus our attention on the thing itself and not on the the one who the thing is supposed to represent. So um, that's not necessarily the case in our text, but there there is a danger in having even a a very sacred, very powerful, very holy religious piece like the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and at times, Israel doesn't know exactly what to do with it. That's kind of outside the bounds of our text today, but it's part of the story. Yeah, and one's got to remember that the mercy here is called the mercy seat, the cover. The mercy is in some ways keeping the people from seeing the power directly. There is a shrouding in, the, in, in this arc that is worth noting that in the same way that when Moses went up to the mountain, the mountain was covered with smoke, there's this belief that uh, one can't see God. One can't come into the presence of God's power, certainly not uh, without a deep sense of reverence and, and awareness, uh, even a kind of holy fear. Um, here, there's a kind of mercy of having that 
covered, contained, that the human is in some ways mediated between that contact with God. And I, I think that that is another thing that Christians came to scandalously proclaim is that God removed that medium. God removed the middle when God sent his son. And, you know, that, once again, we're getting very nuanced with the the thing of the Old Testament connected to the theology of the new. But, you know, this is what early Christians wrestled with when they came to these scriptures as their own. Well, I think what's interesting in a book like Exodus, we'll see this very differently in, say, uh, Kings and Chronicles, where they're talking about the temple and things that won't move. But here, the tabernacle, the ark, these are things designed to travel with the people. And so they reinforce this idea that God is present. And to some extent, that's part of the the power they represent is that they move with the people as a an almost living reminder that the people are not alone, that they're not abandoned, that God is with them. They take this ark with them, and it represents God. They set this tabernacle up each and every time they move, and they now have a familiar, a familiar space in a new place. And there is a, you know, when we get to the temple, there's permanence. That the temple's not moving. But here in the Exodus story, which is all about the journey, you have all of the things that are going to be described are things that go with the people. And, and I think that matters. I think that's an important theme. I think you just named this episode, Familiar Place, uh, Familiar Space in a New Place. I, I think that's an a unbelievably mm. apt uh, summary. There. Maybe. No, that's really good. I haven't built the tabernacle yet. Yeah, but the idea... It's a good phrase. No, it's a good phrase, because the idea that the people find familiarity not in the location or view that they look at, but rather in the one who's gone with them, and these the symbols that point them to him, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's connected. All right. Well, friends, thanks for being with us. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Certainly, uh, would love to see you tomorrow. Take care. 